Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're new here, I have to bring up my own podium, uh, getting a little workout in the morning. Um, thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Eric No. if you don't know. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Um, and I would really love to get to know you. If you're new uh, to our church, uh, right back there is a welcoming lounge. Uh, right after service, I'll be in there uh, to answer any questions. If you just want to ask me anything or um, if you uh, just want to know more about our church or anything like that, uh, please do uh, stop by our welcoming lounge right after. I, w- I will be there. Um, we've been going through a series called Flawed, and we've been looking at the book of Judges, and we're looking at specifically four stories uh, in the book of Judges and seeing how God actually uses flawed situations, flawed people, people uh, to work uh, into his flawless plan. And uh, in, in our first week, we looked at flawed revival, and we looked at the cycle of death and revival that the Israelites experienced um, throughout the book of Judges. And it was sort of a summary of what we would be expecting throughout the book of Judges. And uh, we, we said that we, as a church in modern-day America, are also experiencing something of this cycle, that there is death and revival uh, all along the way as we uh, journey as a church. And so we're hoping and praying that God will once again bring a revival, uh, not only to our church, but to America as well. Uh, Last week, Pastor Powell uh, looked at uh, the story of Deborah and Barak, and he looked at the fact that Barak did not have perfect faith. Barak had a flawed faith. Barak had a weak faith. But even despite that faith, God was able to use him and was able to bring about revival in Israel through the battles that he won, even though his faith was not strong and even though it was flawed. Today, we're going to be looking at a very famous character in in the book of Judges, and his name is Gideon. Uh, And we're going to be looking at how even though Gideon failed, and even through the midst of Israelite failure, Uh, that they are even flawed within that, how they perceive their own failures. And we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6, uh, verses 11 through 16. It's the calling of Gideon. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there with me. Judges chapter 6, 11 through 16. I will be reading from the ESV uh, version. Um, And so we have three points. The first one is Gideon's failure. Uh, The second is Gideon's transformation. And the third is Gideon's good news. So Gideon's failure, transformation, And then finally, his good news. And so at this time, if you're able to, would you rise with me as we read God's word together? Uh, I'll read it for us. I'll pray. Um, And so if you could remain standing throughout our prayer and then have a seat uh, after the prayer is over. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Judges chapter 6, uh, 11 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abi Ezraite while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Amen. Let's pray. 
Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this word today. God, we pray that as we sit and we study this word together, God, may you penetrate our hearts with this word. God, may we come and may we leave this place changed and transformed by your spirit and by your word. And we pray that all of these things, God, would glorify you and you alone. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to get some distraction today. Uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, the fathers are outside right now. Uh, right behind us, they're uh, throwing axes. So if you hear some cheering, um, oh, there you go, right there. Um, we'll, um, you know, we'll kind of push through it. But, um, you know, happy Father's Day to all the fathers uh, that are in here. Uh, you know, um, the older and older that I get, uh, the more and more I really uh, have a greater appreciation for my dad. Uh, my dad and I, during high school, especially during high school and a little bit in college, had a very contentious relationship. Uh, we uh, fought all the time. We disagreed all the time. And primarily because I thought my dad didn't love me. Because my dad worked so hard. He would wake up at 3 a.m. He wouldn't get home till about 7 p.m. Uh, and, and so he missed my football games. He missed my wrestling matches. He missed everything that I did in school. And so I was incredibly, incredibly upset. And we would fight all the time. But even though my dad worked incredibly hard, over the years I've come to realize that my dad still loved me a lot. And one of the ways in which I, I just remember this is every Friday night, no matter how busy my dad got, every Friday night he'd take myself and my brothers out for dinner. He would take us to the same restaurant, our favorite restaurant. It was called Zippy's, and it was in Hawaii. And he would order the same exact thing every single Friday night, and that was fried chicken and chili. Every single Friday night, the same thing. And then after uh, he would take us out to dinner... Uh, he, would, uh, uh, he would take us out to this place that no longer exists, and especially for you young people, you probably don't know, but there was this place, this magical place called Blockbuster Video, um, and they had, you know, VHS, uh, and we'd rent the VHS every night, and we would watch kung fu movies every Friday night, because my dad loved kung fu movies, and so hence I love kung fu movies now, and we'd watch Jackie Chan, Jet Li, and all these people, and uh, every Friday night, he made time for me. There was not a Friday night that we missed this time together. And even as I grew up uh, older and older and older, I got, I, I realized that my dad was one of my biggest supporters. Even though he wasn't there for my games, uh, very recently my dad has been texting me every single week. And he always asks me, hey, Eric, when's the sermon going to be posted online? Since I've been at this church, he's literally watched every single sermon that I've preached. And it's not because he's enjoyed the sermon so much. It's literally because my dad just loves and supports me. And he just wants to see what I'm doing with my life. Not only that, but I know that my father has always told me throughout my time that he's been praying for me, and he is a man of prayer. And he's prayed, and he's prayed, and he's prayed for me. And it's weird, like when I was younger, one of the reasons why my dad were also in this contentious relationship was because my dad gave me all this advice. And I, I just honestly, I hated that advice. I thought he was foolish. I didn't think his advice was good. I thought it was baloney. And so you would always tell me these things, and I'd be like, Dad, like, why are you so, like, not smart? Like, why are you telling me these things? But the older and older I get, I realize, oh, my gosh, it's like, it's like a movie where, like, at the end of it, you see the whole thing, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, my dad was like Yoda. He knew everything. Like, he was wise. He saw the whole picture. He's, he's amazing. And one of the greatest pieces, my dad ever gave, pieces of advice my dad ever gave me, and he told me this over and over and over, which is why I remember it. As my dad would tell me this, he's like, Eric, stop blaming everybody. He's like, stop blaming everybody. Because I had this ability, this really, really good ability as a kid to look at all the circumstances in my life, all the problems that happened, and I would blame my circumstances, the people in my life, and the situations. 
And so my dad looked at me. He was like, stop blaming everybody. Look at yourself. I remember this one incident in particular. This was when I was a little kid. My mom and dad signed me up for Taekwondo. It's a Korean martial arts. And I remember I worked my way up the belts, and finally I got to red belt, and I was going to transition to black belt, which is the final belt. And, but I had, to com- I had to do this feat. And it was to, you know, they, they would grab this wooden board, and I swear to goodness sakes, it was at least like a foot thick. And I, you have to kick it and then break the thing in half. And I remember kicking it and kicking it and not breaking it and thinking it was just like a piece of stone that was unbreakable. And I remember I go to my dad at night, and I'm like, Dad, like, I can't get the black belt. Like, I can't break the wood. It's like a foot long. It's a foot deep. Like, I can't. It's like a block of wood. Who can break that? And my dad looked at me. He's like, stop blaming the wood. Don't blame the wood. He's like, the reason why you can't break it is because you haven't been practicing. It's because you're not working hard enough. Stop blaming all the things around in your life. Because my dad understood something. My dad understood that even if, even if you have the greatest reasons to blame something in your life, he understood that that would never make you a better person. That what would ultimately make you a better person, a better leader, a better uh, person in society is ultimately to reflect upon yourself and to see where things went wrong on your end. And so he always told me, do not blame. And so if you're a leader in your workplace, if you're a leader at school, if you're a leader in your family, if you're a leader anywhere in your life, even amongst your friends, this is my advice to you as well. Do not blame the circumstances of your life. Do not look around and look for things to blame, but look internally. And that's something I've carried with myself, and I'm not trying to brag here, but it really is something that I have to hold on to. Even in my ministry life, I have a tendency to blame things or blame people or blame situations or blame leaders when ministry isn't going well. And I've had to control myself and say, no, wait, wait a second. If something is wrong in your ministry, Eric, it's because something is wrong with you. And you have to look internally first and see where you can make the corrections and fix the wrongs. And I'm talking about this because this moves us right into our first point about Gideon. See, this idea of blaming is something that Gideon um, needed to get into his heart. Let me just give you a little bit of context about Gideon. Right Before Gideon's arrival, the Israelites had 40 years of peace and joy. 40 years. Deborah and Barak were judges. They were doing amazing things. They were faithful. The Israelites were faithful. They were living great. They had peace, prosperity in the land, joy. And then they died. And then the cycle begins. They become faithless. They forget God. They turn away, and they start worshiping the idols. They start worshiping all these other gods, and then God punishes them, and then he says to them, I'm going to punish you. And and, and so the Israelites turn back, and they repent. And this is where our story picks up, is God raises up another judge in light of this repentance. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now if you're an ancient reader, or even if you are in the agricultural world, you understand that this is a strange, strange image. For Gideon to be beating out wheat inside of a winepress is quite strange. And the reason why is because wheat was always beaten outdoors. Because wheat, if you don't know, right, there's these little kernels, these little grains that you have to beat and separate from the, from the grain from the chaff. But if you've ever seen like a peanut or you've ever peeled a peanut, uh, right over the nut of the peanut's a little brown kind of layering, right, this little light kind of skin. 
And wheat has something similar, right? And when you beat it, all of that chaff falls right off. And so to separate the wheat from the chaff, you have to throw the chaff in the air while you're outdoors. The wind will take the chaff away and the wheat will fall right back down. Thus you get pure grain. But this is strange because everybody in the ancient world knew that wine presses were indoors. You, 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 you press wine indoors because it's cool. You don't want it to be out in the sunlight. It's good for the fermentation process. And so Gideon is indoors beating wheat. And so you're wondering, how the heck is he getting the chaff from the kernel separated? How is he doing this? And I'll tell you how he did it. He had to do it manually. Imagine how long and arduous this process was. I don't know, maybe there could be, maybe he threw it in the air and blew his breath, like, and then tried to, I don't know, but there was no modern fans, there was no modern technology, so he had to do this long, arduous process. So why is getting Gideon indoors? What is he doing there? And if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 6, it tells us why. It says this in verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. In other words, these Midianites were the, like artists at plundering. They would go and they would, as soon as the Israelites harvested their crops, they would go and they would take all of their harvest. They would take away all of their food so that their cattle, so that their children, so that their uh, wives and husbands could not eat. And this is why in, in chapter 6, verse 2, it tells us that Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds because they were hiding from the Midianites. You have to understand this. This was not an economic downturn for them. This was not a little blip in the stock market. It's not like the stock market plummeted 1,000 points. This is economic apocalypse for them. Imagine your bank, your bank account going to zero. Imagine Google, Amazon, Facebook. Imagine GM, Chevy, Ford, all of these great big companies crashing and collapsing. No money, no food, no water. This is the kind of situation they were in. They were not in an economic downturn. It was economic apocalypse. I mean, once you plant the crop and it, somebody takes it away, what do you eat? What do you feed to your cattle? What do you feed to your sheep? There was nothing. They didn't have reserves. They didn't have stores. And so you have to imagine the Israelite situation. And this is why Gideon is in this wine press hiding like a coward because he's saying, oh, man, I don't want anybody to take away this food. So I'm going to do this long, arduous process indoors so nobody can see what I'm doing. And so the Israelites are living this horrendous life. It's not just Gideon. It's all of them. They're filled with anxiety, they're stressed, they're hungry, they're overworked because they're picking out the chaff from the wheat, they're living in fear, they're having all of this stuff, they're not living in peace or joy or any of those things. And so that's why when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says what he says, it's probably one of the most insensitive things somebody could say to you. Look at what the angel of the Lord says to Gideon in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. If I were Gideon, I'd be like, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me? What are you talking about? Do you see my situation? Do you see what I'm going through right now? Do you see that I'm overworked, stressed, anxious? Do you see all of this stuff? Do you see any of it, God? How dare you tell me you're with me when all around me, I don't see you at all. I don't see your presence. I see nothing at all. I don't see the peace, the joy, the patience, the kindness, the fruits of the spirit that you're supposed to give me. I don't see any of it, God. 
How can you tell me that you are with me? How can you tell me that you provide peace and joy that surpasses all understanding when I don't have the peace and joy that surpasses all understanding? And that's exactly what Gideon says back to the angel. Look at verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And why are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, if you haven't been following me up until this point, that's okay. Just listen now because this, this is what I think is very, very interesting. Do you know why the Israelites were not experiencing peace? Do you know why they were not experiencing joy? Do you know why they were filled with stress and anxiety? Do you know why they were filled with fear versus joy? It's not because God abandoned them. It's because they abandoned God. It's not because God abandoned them. It's because they abandoned God. And they're over there blaming God. God, why are you not with us? And God is like, what do you mean? Why, why am I not with you? You ran away from me. How dare you blame me for all of your troubles? The Israelites did not want God. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 6, it says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you remember from two sermons ago, I said that evil in the sight of the Lord does not mean that they did a bunch of wicked things like thieving and murdering. Rather, what it is, is it's just one sin. It's that they turned away from God and started worshiping the Baals and the idols. In fact, if you look at Joshua chapter, or Judges chapter 2, I apologize, in verse 2, verses 11 to 12, it says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And look what it says next. And they served the Baals. And they look, verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord. The Israelites abandoned the God. The Israelites left God. The Israelites are the one that said, God, I don't want you here. Get out. And God was like, okay, I'll leave. You don't want me. You want the Baals. You want the Asherahs. You want the idols. I'll give them to you. The reason why the Israelites are filled with anxiety, the reason why the Israelites are hungry, the reason why the Israelites are overworked is because they've abandoned God. Not because God has abandoned them. And God says the same thing to us. I can bring you peace. I can bring you joy. I can bring you patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I can bring you all the fruits of the Spirit. But I want you to worship me. I want you to follow me. I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I don't want you to serve anybody else but me. In Judges chapter 10, there is this pattern that God reveals to us. It's a very interesting pattern. And it's this. Every time Israel worshipped the idols of a nation, that nation ended up becoming oppressed and overtaken by that very nation. And so, for example, the Israelites began worshipping the Canaanite, or the Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Asherahs, and so therefore the Canaanites overtook them. The Israelites started worshipping the Hivite gods, and so the Hivites took over them. You see the pattern. And here as well, they started worshipping the Midianite gods, and the Midianite gods and the Midianite people are the ones who overtook them and, over, and, 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 and oppressed them. And God is essentially saying, you want those idols? Have those idols. You want those idols? Have those idols. I'll let you serve them. I'll let you love them, but look at what your life will be like. You don't want me? I'm not going to force myself on you. You don't want my presence? I'm not going to force my presence upon you. If you want money to rule your life, I will let money rule your life. It will control your emotions. It will control your heart. And look at all the stress and all the, the baggage you will receive from making money your God. 
You know how many friends I have? There's so many of my friends who are investing into this cybercoin stuff, the, the bitcoins and the ethereums and all these different things. And you know what's crazy? So many of my friends have actually made a lot of money. They, like, some of them have turned $1,000 into $50,000. And this is within a span of months. And I look at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can get on in, the, in on this, right? But you know, you'd expect people to be happy after making $50,000. But you know, most of the people that I know, they're not happy. They're actually more stressed. You know why they're overstressed? Because they're like this, I made $50,000, but, but should I keep it in there or should I take it out? If I keep it in there and it grows to $100,000, but I take it out at that time, then I'm screwed because all of my other friends are going to be rich. I'm not going to be rich because I took it out too early. So what if I keep it in there? But if I keep it in there and then, the, and then it goes downwards and then I lose all the 50K, then I'm going to be screwed. You see the pattern. They're stressed. They should be happy. They just made $50,000, but they're more stressed than ever. And it's because they've made money their idol. And God says, okay, you want to make money your idol? Go ahead. It's not going to bring you satisfaction. It's not going to bring you peace. It's not going to bring you what you think it'll bring you. If you want to live for popularity instead for God, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. And you will experience fear from every person's comment. You know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes in the smallest corners of my heart, this is a confession. In the smallest corners of my heart, sometimes I wish I were a celebrity pastor. I wish I had a congregation of 2,000 people or so. I'm being very, very honest. But you know what I did recently? I started looking at some of these celebrity pastors online. I started looking at their Instagram accounts. And do you know what I find? These wonderful pastors, they're, they're just ministering the word of God. You look at their comments section, and there's so much hatred towards them. As if, like, these pastors have done something personally to them. Hatred after hatred after hatred. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You want fame? You want people to approve of you? Okay, God says, you want it. I'll let you have it. You know how many young people want to be famous these days? It's crazy. The, the, the amount of students today that want to be famous have gone up from like 10% to almost 70%. And it's because of the YouTube generation, right? We see all these YouTubers becoming famous, overnight sensations, and we're like, oh, man, I want it. Well, you want fame? You want popularity? I'm telling you, it's not what you think it is. If you want another God besides God, he says, go ahead. Let's see how merciful those gods are. Let's see how good they are to you. But I'm telling you, they are not. I think oftentimes we think God to be this horrible God who just pours out his wrath and punishes people. And he does. But in this situation, the way God punishes them is just by simply saying, go. Do what you want to do. You know, um, my son, he's uh, almost about two years old now. And um, one of the things that he recently started doing was he wants to be exactly like me. So he's trying to do all the things that I do. And one of the things I recently started doing was I, I eat hot sauce with every single meal that I eat. And so my son wants to eat hot sauce. If you guys don't know, there's a little Trader Joe's brand called the Habanero Hot Sauce. It's fantastic, by the way. You guys should go out and get it after the service. Uh, it'll make every meal greater. Um, but anyhow, I, I, I've been eating this Habanero Hot Sauce. And then one day my son goes... Oh, like he can't talk it, but he's like, mm, like I want to eat that. I'm like, no, 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 you don't want to eat this. He's like, no, 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 I want. He keeps asking for it. Me and my wife are sitting down having a good dinner, just from the side. Oh, 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 ah, ah, making these noises. If you, you, you want, like he wants to eat the hot sauce. And so I turned to my son. I said, Josiah, it's hot. It's hot. It's gonna burn. It's gonna hurt you. But he's like, no, 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 I want the hot sauce. So after like literally like 30 minutes of him like, uh, 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 I, I, I turn my mind, I'm like, I'm going to give him some of the hot sauce. My wife's like, okay. 
So we dip a little fork. I give it to him. He puts the fork in his mouth and he eats it. After about five minutes, he starts crying, this belligerent cry. He's like, ah! And he literally sticks out his tongue and he starts grabbing his tongue and he starts pulling on it over and over again because he doesn't know how to make it stop. We try to give him milk and cold water, but he's just in this terrible, terrible pain. And I kept telling him, I was like, Josiah, see, I gave you what you wanted, but it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out. And you see, in some small sense, that's what God does to us. He says, look, you, you want money, you want fame, I'll let it take, take control of you. You, you. you want notoriety, you want status, you want a claim, I'll give it to you. I'll let that take control of you. But I'm telling you, it's not what you think it is. We keep blaming God for all of our problems, for all of our stress, for all of our anxiety, for everything that we have in our, and we keep blaming him. And God says, it's not me, it's you, you've abandoned me. You know, one of the questions that I get sometimes as a pastor is they ask me something like this. How could a good God allow people to go starving in this world? It's one of the questions that I get sometimes as a pastor. And I remember in, uh, I was listening to a Francis Chan sermon, or sorry, I was watching it online, and he presents this video that he made with his family. And I thought it was such a brilliant video. It was a weird video, but uh, brilliant. In the video, he's going to in and out with his family. He takes out all the hamburgers, all the double-doubles, all the cheeseburgers and whatnot. He brings it out. He sits down at a table, and his kids are like, oh, I'm so hungry. I can't wait to eat. And he's like, wait. He's like, wait till daddy eats first. So he takes all the burgers. He starts munching it down. He starts drinking the milkshake, the Diet Cokes or whatever, right? And then he takes his baby's milk bottle. He opens up. He drinks his baby's milk, and then he starts eating all the food. And meanwhile, the kids and his wife are like, we're hungry. Give us food, please. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to keep eating. And finally, when he's done, he's like, okay, now you guys can eat. And the kids start eating, and it's like scraps. Scraps are left over. And after they're done eating, they're like, daddy, we're hungry. We're so hungry. And he's like, he's like, oh, my Lord. He's like, how could you be starving? God, why could you do this? Why would you make these people starve? And so he's like, let's pray. And he's like, dear God, please help us to get food. And you see the irony in what Francis Chan is trying to do. We have so much food in the world. Our problem is not that we don't have enough food. We have enough. We, we throw away millions of pounds of food every day. We have all-you-can-eat buffets everywhere. All-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. All-you-can-eat Chinese buffets. All-you-can-eat dim sum. And we throw, throw, throw food away. And we have the audacity to say, God, how dare you make these people starve in this other country? And God's sitting over there saying, What? I gave you guys enough food. You guys got to share it. I gave you the, the gift of technology to ship things across the ocean. Why don't you guys share it? You keep blaming me for all your problems, but meanwhile, you're sinning. You're doing whatever you want. Why are we constantly blaming God for all of our problems? Look, I'm not trying to minimize your problems. I know your problems are hard. But I think for a lot of us, we turn to God and we say, God, why? When in reality, most of our problems come from the fact that we've sinned against God. That we're continuously turning away from him and not following his commands. We don't follow God and so God says, okay, that's the consequences of your actions. This leads us to our second point, Gideon's transformation. Look at what God's response to Gideon is. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him, that's Gideon, and he said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. You see, what's happening here is that Gideon wanted God to magically save him. 
Gideon wanted God to magically snap his fingers to sprinkle some dust and say, okay, I'm going to save Israel. What Gideon did not expect is for God to say to him, I'm going to use you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. I'm not going to remove the circumstances of your life. I'm going to change you first in order to save you. See, we want peace. We want joy. We want all these things. And yet God says, I'll give you peace and joy, but I'm not going to do it magically by snapping my fingers. I'm not going to do it magically by sprinkling dust on you. I'm going to make you change first. I'm not going to change your circumstances. I'm going to change you. Do you know what's so heartbreaking to me at times? You, you, you've, you've probably seen this on the news before, but these Christian families will have a sick child and they won't take the sick child to the hospital. They'll just pray and pray and say, God's going to heal this sick child. And you know what? That's, that's not right. God actually gave us something called the means of grace. That's a theological term, meaning that God will use the things of this world in order to heal, in order to restore, in order to do certain things. And so, yes, it's a good thing if your child is sick to take them to a doctor. Because God will use doctors. God will use those things for his glory, for his healing. And yet there are times where these parents uh, uh, will not, will withhold medicine in light of prayer. You know, back in 2008 or 2009, I, I don't know which year it was, but there was a girl named Karen Newman who was only 11 years old and she had diabetes. Very simple treatment. Give her some insulin. But the parents said, I'm going to pray because God is going to do something magically. God is going to sprinkle some dust and make her better. And yet that child ended up dying. Because God says, look, I've given you doctors. I've given you modern medicine. Use the means by which I've given to you to heal others. And here's the thing. Here's what we fail to realize. We're just like those parents, actually. We can look at those parents and judge them, but we are the same way. We tell God, I want peace. I want joy. I want patience. I want love. I want all these things. But God, I want you to magically sprinkle it on me. But God says, no, I'm not going to magically sprinkle it on you. I'm going to give you the means by which to become more patient. I'm going to give you the means by which to become more caring and loving. I'm going to give you the means by which to have more joy in your life. For many of us, we want peace. We want more love. We want more joy. We want intimacy with others. We want community. We want lives that are filled with the presence of God. And yet God says, I'm not going to sprinkle you with magic dust. I'm not going to change you magically. I'm not going to change your circumstances. I'm going to change you. God wants to, to heal our brokenness, but God also says, first, I've got to make you more forgiving. And so God will actually bring people to forgive in your life. He's not going to, again, sprinkle you with dust. He's going to give you people to forgive. And C.S. Lewis says this, forgiveness is a lovely ideal until you have to do it. God says, I want to give you joy, but I've got to work on your patience and contentment. And so God says, I'm going to stick you in this dead-end job for years and years and years. And, but guess what? I'm going to work on your patience. I'm going to grow your patience. I'm going to grow your contentment. I'm going to stick you in this life stage of singleness for a long, long time, and I'm going to make you wait and wait and wait. I'm going to grow your patience and contentment. I'm not going to sprinkle you with something. I'm going to give you the means by which to make you patient and loving. God says, I'm going to give you joy, but I've, I'm sorry, I, I want to give you a big loving heart, but I need you to serve first. I need to start, start having you lay down your selfish pride and your selfishness and start serving others. And I'm telling you, your heart will grow. We want to live a life of joy, love, and healing, and yet we don't want God to do a work on us. We want God to do a work on our circumstances. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to change you first. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say. 
is a brilliant, brilliant illustration. He says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine your home. He says God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house down about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it. See, God won't change your circumstances. God will actually give you circumstances that will hurt. God will actually allow certain circumstances to enter your life that will hurt terribly. But what God is trying to do is he's trying to break down your homes. He's trying to break down your hearts because he wants to build something even better. He wants to build you into a person that's even greater. A person that's even more loving so that he can come and live and reside and be there with you. He wants to bring you joy everlasting. He wants, you to, bring, he wants to bring his presence, his love, his grace. He wants to bring it all. But he wants to make you different first. See, at the beginning of the story, Gideon is hiding in this wine press. He's a coward. He's a coward, for goodness sakes, hiding. Not only that, but if you look at the story, he actually has a low view of himself. He actually lies. Look at verse 15. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and that's not true. It's not the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house, and that's not true either. Because we learn later on that actually he's an aristocrat. He actually has money. He's actually one of the greatest in his clan. And yet you see what Gideon does is he downplays himself. But at the end of the story, if you read to the end of Gideon's account, God changes him 180. He, he does a whole turnaround with Gideon. If you remember, Gideon starts off with this large, large army, and God says, no, 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 no you're not going to fight with that large army. I'm going to cut it down to about 300 people. You're going to fight the Midianites, which are 10,000 with 300 Gideon comes in as this coward, as this fool, as this person who has no strength of his own. God changes him and transforms him to a place where he's knocking down idols in front of people, where he's fighting battles with only 300 men. God changes him. God transforms him, and he wants to do the same to you. He wants to change your hearts and your minds so that you become absolute, dedicated followers of him, so that you love and you worship him and him alone. This leads us to our third point, Gideon's good news. Look, I know for so many of you in this place, you're in a place, you're in a season right now where you do. You're, you're just like, you know, you know what, Eric? Like, I get it. I understand what you're saying, but I just feel like God has abandoned me. It doesn't matter what you're saying right now. Like, I've just, it just feels like God isn't there. And I want you to listen to what verse 11 says again. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth and Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Ebi-Azrite. Do you, do you understand what's happening here? Before the angel of the Lord actually appears to Gideon, he was just sitting there watching Gideon. It's actually a little creepy, to be honest with you. He's just sitting there. We don't know how long he was sitting there, but he was there. And later on, it actually tells us that that angel was actually the Lord himself. Because Gideon's like, oh my gosh, I should die right now. But Gideon ends up building this altar because he's like, I've seen God face to face and I did not die. And you see, all the while, when Gideon thought God had abandoned him, God was present. 
God was there sitting, watching him suffer, watching him pick out every single little chaff from the grain. He was watching Gideon do his thing. And then God finally appears to him and says, look, I'm here with you. But Gideon did not see it. Look, and I know what that feels like. When I was in college, man, I went through this tremendous time where I thought God was not with me. I felt like God had abandoned me. And I tell you, in desperation, not because I was bold, not because I was courageous, but out of desperation, in the quad at UW, I remember just getting on my knees in between classes. I was just like so desperate for God. I just kneeled down in the quad. I said, God, like, like make yourself known to me. Like, why don't you show yourself, please? And I cried out to him. I even went to a tree at University of Washington, and I put my hand on the tree, and I said, die, tree, die, in the name of Jesus, because if you're real, this tree will die. The tree didn't die. I did some crazy stuff, but I was desperate. And I know for some of you, you're in that place where you're saying, man, I, I know you're saying God is with me, but it seems like he's abandoned me. You know, Jesus in John chapter 5, there's this really great story where he heals this man who's been lame for a very, very long time. And then the Pharisees come to him and they're like, how dare you heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? And Jesus says, look, man, like, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath was made so that man could enjoy rest. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made so that you can rest and enjoy it. And he says, look, I know my father rested on the seventh day, but he says, you realize that was just for you so that you would take a rest. And then he says, my father's been working all this time. He's never taken a break 24-7, seven hours, you know, 24-7, seven days a week. He's been working for you. And then Jesus says this, I am working for you. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, the Lord, the creator of the whole universe, he's working for you. 24-7, he does not take a break. He's working even though you don't see it. You know, in between the Old and New Testament, there's about 500 years of silence, and yet we know that God was working out his plan of salvation, that he was preparing Israel for the coming of the king, the coming of Jesus Christ himself, who would die the death of a sinner. And yet even though they did not see it, we know that God was there working out his plan of salvation. And I'm telling you, for you too as well, if you believe, man, God is not with me, I'm telling you, you just don't see it right now. But he's working for you. His spirit is here right now in your hearts. If you have faith and you believe, it tells, tells you that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That his spirit resides in you. You know, my father, I, I told you, I, I didn't think he loved me, but I remember this one particular incident that I remember very, very vividly. I remember I woke up in the middle of the night because I had to use the bathroom, and I remember hearing just some voices talking. And so it sounded like somebody was weeping, and so I go into my dad's room, and there my dad is on the floor on his knees in prayer, weeping. And I could tell you, I've never seen my dad cry ever. Even to, to till this day, I've only seen his, the tears come from his eyes once. And that was when his mom was terribly, terribly sick. And I didn't see his face because his face was planted into the ground. And I didn't understand what he was saying because he was speaking in Korean. But I heard my name. And he was saying, Eric, Eric, and I know what he was doing. He was praying for me. He was crying out to God for me. And I look at all of the blessings that I have in my life, my wife, my kids, salvation. I look at even this ministry. I look at all the blessings that I have, and I can tell you there are seasons where I have not prayed. 
And I can tell you, though, I, I know I have these blessings because my dad was working for me. My dad was praying for me. You know, even I remember this one time I didn't understand, but my dad always bought shoes from Payless. Payless shoes were $20 back then. And yet I would ask my dad for, you know, $150 Michael Jordan shoes, whatever they're called, right? And my dad would buy me those shoes. Meanwhile, I didn't realize that he wore the $20 shoes so he could buy me the $150 shoes. I didn't see my dad working for me, but he was working. And in the same way, Christ is working right now. In fact, the book of Revelations tells us, do you know what it tells us? That Jesus, like a fool, is standing at the door of your heart saying, let me in. He's knocking and he's saying, let me in. You've been living however you want to live. You've been doing whatever you want to do. But I'm standing here like a fool. I don't care what people say. I don't care if people think I'm a desperate God. I don't care if they think this is foolish. I'm going to stand here and knock and knock and knock because I'm working for you. I'm present with you. Friends, do you understand that our Lord and our Savior loves you? And he is there working on your behalf. You might not see it. You might not feel it. But friends, he is there. And I pray, I pray that that would encourage your hearts, especially during this difficult time, that even though you've abandoned God, even though you've turned away, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ worked on your behalf even though you abandoned him. This is the God that we worship, friends. A God who says, even though you've left me, I will never leave you. Even though you abandon me, I will never, ever abandon you. I will be with you to the end of time. Go and do like, and be and, and, and live in that joy and that love and that peace. Friends, we have a God who is so great in love that even while we were still sinners, he died for us. And friends, that's the good news that Gideon had. That friends, even though he felt alone, even though he thought he was abandoned, God was with him. And if you read the rest of the story of Gideon, oh my gosh, is God with him. God is with him when he asks for a fleece to be wet and for the ground to be dry. He's there when he asks God again to make the dry ground and the fle or the, the, the fleece dry and the ground wet. He's there when he asks God for another insurance and so God gives him this dream or he gives this other people a dream and Gideon overhears it and he's assured of the victory again. God is with him throughout. And friends, I'm telling you here today, God is with you. And God is with us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to first and foremost, God, lift up those people in this place. God, who are going through a terribly, terribly difficult time. And God, maybe they feel, God, that you've abandoned them, that you've left them. And yet, Father, in this place, would your Holy Spirit go now and comfort them? God, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you tell us that you are the God of all comfort. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go and comfort them now. God, give them a peace, God, that surpasses all understanding. God, and most importantly, God, give them hope, hope for tomorrow. And yet, God, there are some of us in this place, God, who have abandoned you and who've left you. God, and right now in this place, we are convicted of our sin, God. We're convicted of this truth that we have abandoned you. And Father, we, we confess that sin to you, and God, we come back to you once again. 
knowing that we don't worship a stingy God. We don't worship a, a God who holds everything against us, but a God who forgives and is gracious and is kind. And God, we come back to you once again, God, and we want to open up the doors of our hearts to you. We want to open those doors up. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray now for those people, God, for those people that you would give them the strength and the energy and the courage, God, to open up their hearts once again to Jesus Christ, to let him in and for him to do a work in their lives. And Father, we pray for those in this place, God, who are just one with you, God, who are running with you, God, who have let you in and have been experiencing the joy of their salvation, have been experiencing the peace and the overwhelming joy, God, that comes with knowing you. And God, we pray that you would continuously mold and shape them, God. We pray that you would make them into a blessing and into salt and light for others to see. God, we pray that you would utilize them in our cities and in our workplaces, God, to be a blessing to others. And God, we pray that through all of this, God, that at the end of the day, God, you, your son, Jesus, would be glorified and magnified. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.